All right. Um, that they would just understand this reality, this truth of, of what has been done and the magnificence and the, just the amazing, um, amazing things that the Lord has done. And, and chapter 2 is no different. We're going to start kind of diving in more into chapter 2 here, and we're going to specifically be hanging out uh, in the first 10 verses of, of Ephesians chapter 2. And folks, if you guys are familiar with this, you guys know this is some rich stuff. And uh, we're going to be unpacking uh, lots of it today, too. And again, uh, it's kind of a roller coaster, uh, these first 10 chapters. And Paul starts off, he kind of gives the, um, it doesn't whitewash anything. He gives a stark reality of what our life is like outside Christ. Um, the fact that we're dead, condemned, and enslaved. And we're going to unpack some of that. But then in the end, he, he ended on probably the most amazing note ever. By grace, we have been saved. Again, so it's going to be kind of a bit of a roller coaster today. We're going to be kind of all over the place today, guys. So bear with me, strap your seatbelts on, and I promise we're going to end on a good note. <laughs> but again, have you guys ever been a little down about the human predicament today? You guys think about that? Did you guys ever get down about that? Kind of the human predicament today? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? We think about we've got the news, uh, the media, the internet. It's all around us, isn't it? Um, and again, you know, against the, the somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10, just stands out um, in striking relevance to this. And as I mentioned, Paul kind of just plums the depths of pessimism about man. And then he rises to the heights of optimism of God and everything that he's done. And Paul does an amazing job, and he paints a vivid contrast, again, between what we are by nature of our own selves, and on our own, and then also what we can become by grace, and how beautiful that is. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, uh, and again, we're going to be out of the ESV today, and uh, obviously again, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, and let me read the, the scripture for this morning, and then we'll pray. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for our time this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your truth, for who you are. 
and what you have done for us, Lord. And as we just dive into your truth this morning, I pray that it'll just resonate with our hearts, that you will enlighten us, Father, that you will just just open our hearts, that we will just understand uh, the truth of what you have done, Father, and why you've done it. Father, we love you. You are so good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, before we look at this in detail and kind of unpack the devastating uh, description of our our human condition apart from God, I just want to be clear about something real quick, too. Um, That this is a description about everybody, about me, about you. Again, when, when Paul's talking in Ephesians, one of, the, one of the, the themes throughout this entire book is the unification of, of everyone, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, kind of where we've all been. Again, he starts out in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Again, adding himself and fellow Jews, and then concludes with all the rest of mankind. But again, in these opening passages, he singles out basically three appalling truths about unredeemed human beings, which includes ourselves until God has had mercy on us. Again, those, those things are that we were, we were dead. We're spiritually dead. We've been enslaved and condemned. In verse 1, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He gets right to it. And I want to kind of just give... Uh, we're going to be, some, there's some churchy words in here too. I want to kind of just, you know, unpack some of these things for you guys. Um, and kind of give it a description of death here and what he's talking about. But folks, this is not a figure of speech, but rather a factual statement of everyone's spiritual condition outside of Christ. And it is traced to our trespasses and sins. Use these trespasses and sins. And if you look at the two uh, kind of definitions of these Greek words, like trespasses and sins, again, trespasses, it's kind of an act of going beyond uh, somewhere we know we're not supposed to go. It's a false step uh, of crossing a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. And then we've got, you know, just our sin. And I love, uh, I think it was Mark a few, uh, a few weeks ago did a great job of, of just describing that too. But, you know, just, just missing the mark, right? And falling short of a standard that's set before us. And again, you know, these two words basically cover the entirety of human depravity, kind of active and passive, if you will. They're sins of kind of commission or omission. And, and as a result, we are dead. In other words, alienated from a life of God. And again, for true life, eternal life is fellowship with the living God. And spiritual death, the death that Paul's talking about here is separation from him, which sin inevitably brings. Isaiah 59.2, this might be up on the board here, I don't know, okay, says, but your inequities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's kind of the, the first appalling truth that Paul really goes after. The second one he talks about, that we were enslaved that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And kind of a description here too as well. The walk that Paul's talking about, he's not, when, he, when he's talking about, um, to simply say we walked in our sins. Again, a walk in some times can congest, or a walk can sometimes kind of mean, or you think about just a leisurely stroll or a walk along the beach or something that's going on here, right? 
But what he's talking about is no true freedom at all, but rather a fearful bondage to forces over which we had no control. And what are they? He goes on to describe. What are we enslaved to? Again, some kind of churchy words here we're going to talk about and unpack. But the world, the flesh, and the prince of the power of the air. First of all, the world. And following the course of this world. And the world described here, again, is, is a life that's apart from God and drifting along the stream of the world's ideas of living. Scripture is pretty clear about this as well. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that, that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, Colossians 2, 8 through 10 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, so we don't want to be enslaved by the world or, or just going along with what the world tells us to do. And then he talks about the flesh. Again, are the passions of the flesh. And again, by flesh, we don't mean like the living fabric and you know, kind of the organism here. But again, uh, our fallen, self-centered human nature. Whenever self rears its ugly head against God or man, um, there is the flesh. Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And again, folks, when we think about this, too, I want you to kind of um, consider the flesh can be almost uh, considered and, and kind of disguise itself, too, in a very reputable form and disreputable pursuits as well. Um, but however respectable to the public, you know, the guys or disguise it is, it adopts our self-ingrained self-centeredness. And this is a horrible bondage. The third one um, is that we're enslaved to is the prince of the power of the air is basically Satan, folks. And again, and, you know, just the reality of this, and I, I know some of you might be wrestling with this too, but just the reality of, of, of the fact that there is an enemy. Um, you know, John 10.10 10 is pretty clear. Uh, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And again, he's out there prowling like a roaring lion looking uh, just to devour and inject lies and discouragement and all the above. And then the third um, kind of deplorable truth that Paul goes after too of, of, our, of our condition outside of Christ is that we're all condemned. And just when you think, Paul, it can't get any worse and he can't go after it anymore, he keeps going. Um, a description of our pre-Christian state. Again, we're not only in Ted and enslaved, but also condemned. As he describes it, we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Those are kind of harsh words, huh? Those are really harsh words. And again, I want to really carefully consider what Paul's trying to say here. Firstly, and kind of you know, talk about the wrath of God. Um, and God's wrath isn't like man's at all. 
It isn't a bad temper where it's flying off the handle at any moment. It's neither in spite or malice or animosity or revenge. It is never arbitrary. Again, because since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, and that's namely evil. And therefore, it's entirely predictable, and it's never subject to mood or whim or caprice. Or again, what is his wrath? If it is neither an arbitrary reaction or an impersonal process, it's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it. And his resolve instead to condemn it. So there you have it. There's our condition outside of Christ. And again, we're, we're, we're spiritually dead outside this life and enslaved to the world and the flesh and the devil and condemned. And folks, a radical disease requires a radical remedy. And this is outside of anything that we could ever do as men. Outside of any, any education that we could offer, any medicine that we could come up with, uh, or anything that we could ever muster on our own, ever. And here begins the really good stuff and the good news. I love this. If we take a look at verses 3 and 4, we see his wrath is not incompatible with love. Verses 3 and 4 say, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, once, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is where it gets good. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Don't you just love the way verse 4 begins? But God. Again, these two simple words set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind show the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. Folks, we were objects of his wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, we were dead. And dead men don't rise. But God has raised us with Christ. And we were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness. But God has raised us with Christ. And again, thus God has taken a reverse action to reverse our condition of sin. Again, it's important to look um, at both of these parts and then contrast them together, specifically what we are by nature. And what we are by grace. And think about these things. The human condition and the divine compassion. God's wrath and then God's love. When we think about these things, two things come to mind. These are kind of two of the final points I want to really get after today. Number one, what God has done and why God did it. What God has done. Again, folks, in one word, he has saved us. Again, kind of a, a word, churchy word, 
that we, I think we can hear so often, so many times, and become callous to the fact that, you know, he saved us and saved us. And what, what does that look like? And again, want to take a look at what God has done. Again, both verses 5 and 8, the same beautiful assertion is, ba- is made. By grace you have been saved. Folks, these are some of the most refreshing, amazing, beautiful verses in the entire Bible, and they never get old, ever. And again, it's been said that verses 4 through 10 uh, almost even resonate as a glorious hymn, celebrating the glories of salvation, which is interrupted twice by the acclamation, by grace you have been saved. And the cool thing about this too, saved is a, is a perfect participle. And by that, it emphasizes the abiding consequences of God's saving action in the past. Uh, as almost as Paul should say, you are people who have been saved and remain saved, remain saved, forever saved. Again, you know, this being said, many folks today might find traditional salvation language meaningless. Uh, and again, because of this, I want to probe a little further here, uh, specific, specifically taking a look at three of the verbs that he goes after, which take up what God did to Christ and then link us to Christ in these events. And we think about what God has done. First, in verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. Next, in verse 6, he raised us up with him. And thirdly, he made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, I just want to let this, this reality sink in on these verses because this is big stuff. And these verbs, made alive, raised, and made to sit, refer to the three successive historical events in the saving career of Jesus his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. And what is exciting is that Paul is not writing about Christ, but about us. He's affirming not that God quickened, raised, and seated Christ, but that he quickened, raised, and seated us with Christ. I want that to sink in, guys. This is amazing stuff. And Paul emphasized throughout the whole letter the union of God's people with Christ, the entire human race, Jews and Gentiles. And what constitutes this distinctiveness? Again, not just that they admire or even worship Jesus or abide in the church and what the church says, or um, not even that they live by a certain moral standards. No. What makes us as Christians distinctive? It's our new, and and it's kind of a new solidarity as a people who are in Christ. Who are in Christ. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we have shared in his resurrection and ascension and session. And this bears witness to a living experience that Christ has given us a new life. And because of this, we're sensitive to the awareness of the reality of God and a love for him and a love for his people. And this is a life with a new victory, with evil increasingly under our feet. Folks, we were dead, but we have been made spiritually alive and alert. Amen? And we were in captivity, but we have been set free and empowered. What God has done. Let these verses just resonate through your hearts, what God has done. The next thing, why God did it. Again, just as Paul continues to, to probe into the depravity of mankind, he just goes after it. It's this amazing things, um, a description of, of beyond and above, of God's saving action, of why he did it. 
Um, and again, you know, the major emphasis in these passages too, um, the whole section of Scripture is, is not what prompted God to act on our behalf. is not something in us or something that we have done, uh, some supposed merit on our behalf, uh, but something in himself, his own unmerited favor. And again, Paul assembles some amazing words to express the origin of God's saving initiative. He writes of number one, God's mercy in verse four. A God who is rich in mercy and God's love. Out of the great love with which he loved us, verses four. God's grace. By grace you have been saved, verses 5 and 8. And fourthly, his kindness. His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, in verse 7. We were dead, helpless to save ourselves. Only mercy could reach the helpless. We were under God's wrath, and only love can triumph over wrath. We deserved nothing at God's hand but judgment, on account of our trespasses and sins. And only grace, only grace could rescue us. So why did God act? Out of his sheer mercy, love, grace, and kindness. And folks, just when you think it couldn't get any better, he goes even further, he keeps going. He saved us in order that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Again, back in verse 19 and 21, in raising and exalting Christ, he demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in raising and exalting us, he also displayed the immeasurable riches of his grace and will continue to do so throughout all eternity. As living evidences of his kindness. You know, it's, it's our job to point people away and beyond ourselves and to him who we owe everything. It's kind of like a patient after a major operation, right? It's a living testimony to his surgeon's skill. Again, we're both exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. And this is nothing Nothing that we have done. Again, verse 8. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And secondly, not because of works, lest any man should boast. It's nothing that we have done or earned or deserved. And again, by now you might be thinking that Paul's ready to move on. Oh, it gets better. He's determined not to leave this theme until he has expounded it beyond any possibility of misunderstanding. He adds one more positive, decisive, glorious affirmation in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the first emphatic of this, this, this sentence is his. 
I want you to circle that. His. Again, this is not our achievement. This is God's. What are we now? We are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece. And you are created in Christ Jesus. Again, I love both workmanship and, and, and created speak of creation. And folks, I just want you to think about this. Salvation is creation, a recreation, a new creation. Again, Paul is under no illusions whatsoever about the, the degradation of mankind. You know, as we, as we looked at this, now he refused uh, to, to whitewash the, the situation. And as he began the paragraph, of a faithful betrayal as man is subject to sin, death, and wrath. Yet he refused to despair because he knew God. And, he knew, and the God that he knew, the God of resurrection. And even more than that, a God of creation. And I love how both of these metaphors just indicate the indispensable necessity of divine grace. For resurrection is out of death, and creation is out of nothing. And that is the true meaning of salvation. We think about why God did it. Folks, I just pray, and we could, we could spend years on the scripture, but I just pray uh, that the truth of this, this, this scripture just penetrates your heart this morning. And take some time this week just to go back. And just let these truths, these, 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 these ten simple verses, they're not simple. <laughs> these ten verses just wash over you. And that the reality of this, this what has happened um, just sinks into your heart and is impressed into your heart. I want to end on the scripture. This is Hebrews uh, 13, 20, verse 21, before I pray for us. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we do, we thank you for uh, just your truth and your word this morning. Father, I thank you that you are a God who saves that you are a God who loves, that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of kindness, more than we could ever imagine or understand or fathom, Lord. But I pray that you will just continue to give us insight of this, Lord, that we need you so desperately, that a life outside of you uh, is hopeless, Lord. But in you, we have everything that is so good and so rich, Father. Thank you, Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a great Sunday. You're excused. Go enjoy the leaves and the creation. Amen.